uh, got yourself at the Super Bowl. You That's were partying, right. That's man. Right. You were partying. Trey Wingo was yeah. partying with the kids at 1 a.m. Shocker, as you can see. Yeah, I'm like, shocker, as you can see. You're a pandemic ready. <laughs> this is, we're, we're not breaking news here. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Teams, where there's a team, there's a way. Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles transform the way they work. After closing their New York City showroom, they started doing virtual visits on Teams, and now people from all over the world can come into their showroom. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Hey, everybody, what's up? Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. Trey Wingo here. As you know, Season 2 is all about Super Bowl championships and what it meant to the players. And our next guest probably never thought he'd get there with the way his career started. He's the son of football royalty. His father is Pro Football Hall of Famer Howie Long. Chris Long was the second overall selection in the 2008 draft by the then St. Louis Rams. And they were terrible for the entire time he played for them. But then, at the end of his career, he went around and became a Super Bowl champion on not one, but two different teams. The journey of Chris Long is quite incredible, and that's why he's a big, interesting guest in this episode. Delighted to be joined now by a a guy that I sort of got to know in a weird way, a longtime defensive end and, uh, I don't know, just an all-around good guy, Chris Long, one of the lineage families in the NFL. Um, do you remember our first conversation, the first time we ever had a conversation on air? On air? I, I don't know if, remember if it was on air or not, but I remember being in the back uh, at one of those draft things, you know, with our whole yeah. group. And uh, you said something in effect of, like, you're going to go early tomorrow. And I said something in the effect, I'm just happy to be getting drafted. So you got a big kick out of that, I know. <laughs> it was. It was hilarious. Like, you again, it was right before we were taping a thing, right before you got drafted. And I said, you know, are you feeling pretty good? He goes, and you just said, I hope I get drafted. I was like, breaking news. You're going to get drafted. <laughs> you, you waited all of one pick before you were taken second overall uh, by the Rams. I think I knew by then. Was that the day of? It was like two days before. I two, days two days before, before. I didn't know quite where I was going to go. And honestly, I found out in the bathroom um, on the phone <laughs> the night before Scott Linehan and Jay Glazer, who, you know, was yeah. – my man but got the scoop right so he uh uh i was i i lenahan called me and we were all partying the night before because no matter what it's going to be a good day you think and uh then the rest is history but um i got that call and i kind of had a feeling it was going to be two um but it was really anywhere in the top six to eight was kind of where we thought yeah and it's funny to look back at the 2008 draft now to see what the draft has become this I mean it was always a big deal but it's now this spectacle in primetime and all that kind of stuff. People forget the year you got drafted the Dolphins took Jake Long first overall and just made the pick cuz they could like 3 days before the draft. Mm-hmm. So there was no drama whatsoever and the first two picks of the draft were both named Long not related. I mean very that's just Irish draft. It was a very Irish draft. Yeah, I mean you know, it's funny, we, we, you know, I was, Akeem Talib and I were on his podcast and reminiscing about our draft class. And I still keep in touch with Cliff Averill and Calais Campbell. It was a really funny top 10. I joke with people. I always say, you know, I had a middle of the first round career. You know what I mean? But that draft, it wasn't a deep draft. It wasn't like a great draft. So we had some real, we had some real climbers, right? You know what I mean? And the top five, top eight, there were some guys that weren't in the league very long. You know what I mean? It went Jake, who was a very good player. Injuries slowed him down. Myself, Matt Ryan, who's obviously, in my opinion, a borderline Hall of Famer, depending on how you – I mean, gosh, if they run the ball, he is. 
no question, right? Thank you. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, but even after that, it was Glenn Dorsey, Vernon Golston, who if you're oh, a Jets God. fan. And then Cedric Ellis was in there. Keith Rivers. Not a lot of guys that last long. The best defensive lineman that ended up in the draft was Calais Campbell. And, you know, he was yeah. probably a guy that should have gone in the top five. Me and Cliff had great careers or whatever, but Calais has had this unbelievable career that defies logic to be that big and play the position he's played so long, so dominant. Love the dude, too. Man of the year. It's interesting. Like, I'm glad you say that about Calais because I've been around a lot of football players in the job. I've never felt smaller standing next to Calais Campbell. In fact, I, yeah. I have a picture on my phone. Like, he, he came in when he was still with the Cardinals, and we did one of these things. I came up to, like, his nipple. I'm 6'3", <laughs> okay? And I'm, like, hiding under his armpit. I feel like I'm his, like, adopted son. I don't know if there's a larger human than Calais Campbell. And, and not just, like, fat. You know what I mean? You get a you get a fresh whiff of whatever deodorant he's wearing, which I love. And his voice is like yeah. he's one of the rock the rock man in one of these cartoons. Like that's how his voice sounds. It's just yeah. pure gravel. He's totally fit for NFL films, mic'd up. He can do voiceovers for for TV movies, for football movies. It's perfect. He's like a mean Muppet. I mean, that's the best way to describe <laughs> it. <laughs> nice dude, too. Okay. But we played uh, Miami and Virginia. We were yeah. like, same, you know, we were kind of the two guys. So me and Calais have been been knowing each other since 2005, 2006, like ACC media day, that type right. of thing. So it's really cool to see a guy still going. I think he's crazy to still be playing, but. Hey, listen, it, it, if it works for him, it works for him. And right right now it is working for him. Yeah. So so you you were second overall. Obviously, your family is like the the other side of the Manning family, right? The Manning family is all the quarterbacks, you know, Eli, Archie, Peyton. Uh, you know, two of your family are defensive side of the ball. And then Kyle is just a giant whatever you want to call him. An athlete, yeah, I mean, of nature athletic. Milkman's kid. Um <laughs> like we used to joke that like even as talented as my dad is because my dad's a stud man right but kyle's an alien like he's just yeah the world and uh yeah i would say if the boses have kids in, in a hurry here we're going to be getting bumped right off that stump but uh but it, it's it's cool i mean you look around the league i was talking about this yesterday the kelsey's um you know the mccordy's uh, there are a lot of of brothers in the league that you know that you know for some reason, I don't even what are the chances two twins go to league? You know, it's just like, what are the chances? Well, I suppose with twins, it makes sense. But two brothers, like the Bosa's, can be so good at the same position of all things. Like, this is what they were born to do. Uh, but there's not a lot of father and son. So we take a lot of pride in just being able to play as long as we did and have the highs we had with a dad who uh, who did get to do what he did, which was get the gold jacket and all that stuff. Was there a lot of pressure for you? Because you were the first one of your dad's kids to be drafted knowing, oh, yeah. you know, holy shit, my dad is a hall of famer out of that powerhouse of football known as Villanova. Yeah, exactly. Brian Westbrook, uh, Finneran, uh, I think went Finneran, there. Yeah. Tano Passano from the Tano Passano plays yeah. for the Chiefs. Yeah. And, yeah. Who you see play all the time. And you're like, man, his name is long. Uh, I'm afraid, <laughs> you know, like, I'm the worst with names. If I did play-by-play, -play, I would always be afraid to say certain people. That, that guy's had a nice little career, too. Yeah, I, I would say um, I would say there was a lot of pressure, man. Like, you know, just shooting it straight. Uh, you know, th there's flip sides of a coin when your dad 
played ball. The one side of the coin is he's always going to know the right thing to say. He's always going to understand, you know, obviously there's the genetic thing, but I think that gets overplayed because, you know, how many Hall of Famers kids played 11 years in the league? You know, I mean, like, right. it's just, it's not automatic. We'd be seeing every player would automatically have a kid in the league. It's just not the way it works. And so I think that gets a little overplayed, but the negatives of it are, you know, no matter what you do, people are going to say, well, no big deal, which is fine. I don't, I never did this for external um, affirmation. I did it for myself. And uh, the hardest part is the voice in your head that tells you, no big deal, man. You're going to go home tonight. And the guy at home, he's got a gold jacket. So like, who cares what you did? Or like you get, you get, you get a scholarship. It's because your dad, you get picked. It's because your dad, you, you know, you, you get a big contract, even though it's a production business and you have 40 sacks in four years, that's because of your dad, you just get really cynical in a good way. And I think that equipped me well to dealing with the pressures of being a high pick and playing in a dumpster fire of a, of a team, which we were really bad. It's a tough situation to get dropped in. It's a lot of pressure. And it's kind of unrealistic sometimes for these high picks, but I felt like I was pretty well equipped to kind of weather that storm. Did it help that James Laurinaitis was there with you? Because his dad didn't play football, but his dad was a well-known stud superstar in wrestling. Did you guys ever talk about that? Like the dynamic of that? We did, but I think with him, he was able to embrace that a lot more because he wasn't in the same business. You know, wrestling, as I put it, there's no metric for production. Like you're either a big star or you're not or whatever. And his dad was a big star. And by the way, God rest his soul. This dude was an amazing Correct. man. Um, he was, he was just an incredibly sweet human being. And, you know, every day in the tunnel that we usually get beat by 30 and be in the tunnel after a Rams game and or in St. Louis. And, you know, he'd be down there waiting for us, give you a big bear hug, you know, just a real supportive guy. So he passed away recently. Shout out to, uh, to the animal um, and yeah. a great dude. But yeah, I mean, James and I had conversations about it. It was pretty funny. The difference is though, that like I am doing the exact same, same thing that my dad did for a living. So I will always be, you know, compared to him and I could have a career that, you know, 99.9% of players would love to have. But the thing that keeps me grounded almost to my detriment where I can't really enjoy my career is knowing that your dad did it all. And then some, which is fine, yeah. but it does take the novelty out of hitting that home run that every kid dreams of, because for me, it wasn't as big a deal. And I think that right. also helps you stay humble though, too. You know, like you, I'm not going to be all fuck. Well, I can't cuss on here. Can I cuss on here? You I wouldn't fucking worry about it. Ooh, Trey Wingo saying, fuck, this is a, I like this show. <laughs> uh, I can't, like, <laughs> I forgot. I can't rest on my laurels. I can't be too excited about doing everything I've done because, you know, it's been a great ride, but there's three of us in my family who've done it in some capacity. And I think it keeps you humble. I think we have to, to sort of speak on the, on the facts of it. Like everybody that gets drafted is usually outside of the 10 Opasinos of the world or your dad that come from these small schools, you know, Kyle Duggars, Jeremy Chins, all these kind of people. Most, most players that are drafted come from good programs in good conferences that are used to winning. And it's, I'm always curious to see how someone who has been in that situation for their entire life deals with sometimes a really shitty hand. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned it when you got drafted by the Rams in 2008, they were a dumpster fire of a franchise, and they were for a long time. And I don't the think that's where better understand this year. the mental toll. Yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 I, I, 
The, yeah. Like if Twitter was like as hot a spot in 2008 or in the year where we go one in 15 and almost lose to the, the Lions to go in 16, we need a fake field goal to Daniel Fells, Fells in the yep. fourth quarter to win that game. Uh, we were historically bad, you know, mid year on my pod, we kind of went through like, okay, people are talking about the jets. Let's look at point differential. Let's look at all the key metrics. And we were worse. Uh, so it's really hard, man. Even if I was never like a champion before I won a state championship in high school, but I never won like an ACC, um, never Virginia. We were good. We were respectable. Algro did a great job, but we weren't a national powerhouse. Um, Hold on one sec, Trey. Hey, buddy. Yeah, I'll go. It's okay. Come on in. So is that Whaler? Oh, it's Luke. I'm just going to see him for a little Luke, come say hi. And then and then I'll see you in a little bit, okay? Say hi, Trey. Hey, Luke. What's up, man? Say hi, Trey. Podcast. It's a podcast. Mwah. I love you. <laughs> Have fun. I'll see you later tonight. Sorry. Don't worry about it. Take oh. every one of those things because they grow up way too no, fast. I know. Trust me. Um, well, usually when they come banging on the door, they're coming in no matter what. So, yeah. Um, the fuck where would we try? Talk just talking about the mental, the mental yeah, strain so, of so, going yeah, from like, winning to to having no chance, really. So, so essentially, like when you played Frogro, you played on a respectable program. You've never been a laughing stock. I've never been that bad. You know, coming in and seeing some of the things you see. And I had some great veterans, but the, you know, like back in the day before the CBA change, everybody was old, right, Trey? Yeah. You know, so I would walk into a building and be like, especially in St. Louis with a bunch of guys who were maybe great players, but were winding down their careers, making that last check. So there could be like a, a little toxic vibe too. And I don't blame these guys because I can only imagine being 13 years in the league and being like, what the hell am I doing here? Why did I sign up for one more year? So that's the atmosphere you kind of walk into. My The coach that drafted me, Scott Lenahan, was fired after four games. And then from there, <laughs> you know, you talk about the Dwayne Haskins thing. He's a quarterback, that whole thing. Maybe that's why I was a little bit more callous from the beginning and also looked at that and was like, okay, I've been there where, when a new coach comes in. I had Jim Hazlitt who liked me, and I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to be okay. Then second year, Spags comes in. And I love Spags. Me and Spags still talk, water under the bridge. And I also don't blame him, but he really didn't care for me much as a player at that point. Um, there was a point I had like four or five sacks my, my rookie year, which is still a solid year, and there was a lot of promise. Second year, my first eight games, I'm looking at a goose egg. So imagine the like, luckily I was in St. Louis and not playing in Philly or New York, but like you'd Google my, my name and it would autocorrect bust. And so there was a moment for me where I was like, okay, dude, you've hit rock bottom. Like your team is terrible. Obviously it's going to be hard to rush. There's not a lot of leads. You're not, you're not, you're not in a good environment and people are saying you're awful right now. So like, stop worrying about what anybody else thinks and start, you know, just letting it fly out there. And I finished the year with five, the second half of the season. And then, the, you know, next year was a nice run of like 40 and four. So individually it takes a lot mentally to get over it i do think i was probably that was probably my lowest point of my sports career for sure was those early years in st louis and the worst part is people don't get it because you're like how could you be miserable playing a kid's game for a lot of money well guys pour their hearts in this thing and you know even young guys you, they get affected by this stuff and it crushed a lot of us young dudes there weren't many of us in that draft class that made it through a couple of years it was just me and one other dude 
it speaks to what you're talking about with what we're hearing. Like, I don't know if you've seen that clip of JJ going up to Deshaun Watson after the last game and he says, Hey, I'm sorry, we wasted one of your careers. Like you can't, you can't half-ass this game. If you do, you'll either get hurt or the coaches will see it and you won't be around. So yeah. the only way to play this game at a very high level is to fully commit to it. And then when you fully commit to it and it continues to be a suck fest in the win column, I don't think people understand, A, how common that is in the NFL, mm -hmm. and B, how draining it is. It's demoralizing um, because I think one of the hardest things about being a player is everybody around you, the trade-off is you make a ton of money. It's awesome. You can do great things off the field. You're living your dream, depending on who you are, if that was your lifelong dream. Um, but the flip side of the coin is that everybody for the rest of your life is going to associate your play on the field let's face it, above your character, above like who you are, above right. what kind of family member you are, you know, like the Josh Norman thing, it's no shame in getting stiff armed by Derrick Henry, <laughs> but people yeah. are always going to remember that. He got that. tossed though. Yeah. That was like, more than a stiff arm. He, he was sent out of the club. But no man. matter what, no matter what, it's a sport, yeah. you know what I mean? Or like, yeah. you know, a quarterback that fails in the city, um, you know, how quickly it borders on personal that people have a personal issue with yeah. you when you're what you're doing is you're failing at a game. And that strain is really hard on a team uh, that's just not competitive in a front office. that's not competitive in an organization that doesn't seem to be in a good spot. So it can be really hard. And then a the thing I felt bad about later in my career when I got to win was, you know, a lot of St. Louis fans, because they were so appreciative of guys like me and James Laronitis who stuck it out, Robert Quinn, like our defense, that sort of thing that like sure. gave it our all and loved that city. What sucked was when I escaped, I found um, the pot of gold or whatever you want to call it at the end of the rainbow. And people were like, good karma, blah, blah, blah. I'm so happy for you. And I remember thinking, oh, it's luck. I mean, it's luck. Thousands yeah. of guys lived my life in the NFL. And most of them didn't get paid as much as I did to do it. So that's the blessing of being a high pick on a bad team. There were locker rooms full of guys uh, that got their careers derailed by being on bad teams. They still do. People forget the context yeah. of what we talk about Adam Gase. Everybody likes to make the joke. Okay. Uh, this player is look how good he is since Adam Gase. And we make that joke to indict Adam Gase. But then when a player struggling under Adam Gase currently, we don't give him the same benefit of the doubt, you know? So right. I feel for a guy like Sam Darnold, I feel for some of the players in, in situations like that or in organizations that are just mired and losing. So, but when I won at the end of my career, I thought about, veteran leaders in my locker room when I got in the league. James Hall, who's like my mentor in the league, is like a big brother to me. You asked me who's the most impactful player uh, to my career, I'd say James Hall. He was a um, 10, 11-year vet, Michigan guy, played in Detroit, then ended up in St. Louis. That was his career, Detroit and St. Louis. So just his soul was just charcoal by the time I got there. And yeah. we didn't talk for a whole year. He was the guy whose position I was supposed to be taking. And I did take some of his time and I didn't deserve it my rookie year. He was a hell of a player, 60 career sacks. But I just thought about guys like him that never got to see the other, the other end of the rainbow, so to speak. And I just, you know, when people say good karma and all that stuff, I don't believe in karma in the NFL. I really don't. Um, no. I think you just make decisions the best you can and you, you bust your ass and hope for the best. Yeah, that's the most honest way to look at it because your experience before the end of your career, which we'll get to in a little bit, was basically the experience for most people that play this game. And I think that that's lost on so many fans. They see what we're about to see, the playoff run, the glom, the 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 glamour, the glitz, all that kind of stuff. They don't see week 14, 
you know, four and uh, four and nine versus five and eight, slapping heads together for for three hours and getting nothing out. of We played in like routinely those games. Like that was all our games after October. Like you had to have NFL ticket, man. Like, and it was just, it was hard. Like, I swear to you, this is sad, but I talked to a buddy or two on the team that used to do the same thing. Used to go home, have a few beers, beat up after the game. If we got a win, which was a rarity, we won 38 games over eight years. So that part is extraordinary in its own way. But I mean, there were nights that I stayed up to watch Boomer and uh, Tom Jackson and think like, we're going to make the highlights tonight. And it would be like, we'd, I'd wait, it'd be like 1247. They show one Steven Jackson run and they get out. And I was just like, we're just so irrelevant, man. Like, and that's, that's why I feel for guys like Steven Jackson. Steven Jackson would be a hall of famer if he played in a big market. I still think he is a Hall of Famer, and I'm going gonna, gonna to die on that hill. I'm going to die on that hill because you look at his best years. I think he had seven or eight straight thousand-yard seasons when there was no chance of them winning, you guys winning anything. Yet, like you on the offense, he went out there and busted his ass mm -hmm. and had like such a productive career, and no one will remember it because he never got to the other side. Nobody. So the accolade part of it. I mean, like true football fans, when you mention Steven Jackson, they get all excited because they're like, nobody talks about that motherfucker enough. Listen, it's true. And the accolades of it, he was so good that he had to get accolades. But there were a lot of guys who never got accolades because of where they played. So then when, when you know, the rest of your career, when you, you're weighing your career against other people that you know are better, you're better than, people are talking about Pro Bowls and stuff like that. Like, well, this guy's a Pro Bowler because he, he had eight and a half sacks one year or something. And he went to the Pro Bowl. We'd have guys that would have career years and top five in the league statistical years and they wouldn't go, you know, it's just, that's the way it was. So there was, it, it was really, and it's hard when you're the, you're the butt of the joke, man. Like that's why I really appreciate the Jets players, you know, the Jets players, man, these guys bust their ass all year long. People were making fun of them for trying to win at times, right? The same people who are all up in arms this week, uh, performance arts, uh, as I'm liking to call the media nowadays. But I mean, like, it's accurate. yeah, I mean, well, the, here's the deal. The, the Jets guys weren't tanking. They were busting their ass. They were, they were hurt when they lost to the Raiders and they came out and they could have shut it down and booked their vacations. Well, this year you can't even do that. Um, you know, they, they finished strong, dude. I mean, they have two wins. Are you kidding me? Uh, so that's the pride that guys have in locker rooms uh, late in the year. And and it's not all about winning. It's just about it's about being proud of the tape you put out. Yeah. And you mentioned like quarterbacks and obviously a guy that was drafted a couple years after you. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about him over the years. Sam Bradford, uh, you, your loyalty to Sam has been remarkable. You know, it really has. And I will always say this, Sam won the business of football. Oh, yeah. His agent, God bless him. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, that's that's one side of it. But at some point, you want the other reward. And you and I have had a lot of conversations over text on Twitter about a guy like Sam. And you just felt like he was never afforded the opportunity because of A, the team around him, or B, the toll of the game. Yeah, and and we, again, I think some people, quarterbacks, it's such a polarizing topic. It's crazy. It's like it's like religion or politics or something. But I, I really do feel this like we we pick and choose who who we take into account the context of how they come in the league and 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 what's going on around them. And I can honestly say, I really do believe you know the only thing that held Sam back 
from being, you know, that long-term answer for a franchise was just the injuries. And, you know, I think what I learned in the Sam situation was how quickly people will turn on you over stuff you can't control. Like there's, you cannot decide to tear your ACL. I promise you. It's really, it's really hard to to, do that on purpose. It's really hard to do it multiple times on purpose. It's hard, you know, when, after you throw, you know, you you Aaron Rodgers on like a Monday night and you're starting out in in Minnesota and you're saying, okay, he might've finally found his place texting your buddy after that great performance and saying, how's everything going, man? What a day. And he's like, I can't walk today. You know, like, so some guys, you know, you make all the money in the world, but I'm just telling you it, you know, I made all the money in the world playing this game. Some things will always, you know, money can't make better. And, you know, we're very lucky, but you sign up for it and uh, your reputation is on the line every Sunday. And for something as, as, um, as sensible as possibly being injury prone in a car crash game, you know, like you can't control that. And, uh, you know, when I got hurt for a couple of years, I, I, I found that out as well. You know, playing a hundred straight games, you get rolled up on twice. People call you Mr. Glass and shit like that. It's like fans are fickle. Yeah. Well, it's like people don't understand like the Joe Thomas streak of never missing a oh. snap until he tore his bicep. You, literally, you could miss a snap by breaking a shoelace and yes. you'd have to come out and tie your shoe, let alone an injury. Um, I, I, I think people like, I think dump. a lot of... A la yeah. Lamar Jackson. I don't <laughs> exactly. think Lamar had that. Oh, I don't know. I've, I've seen that shuffle. That. I've seen that shuffle with many people working through an airport before. So I, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure about that one. His arm was cramp- cramping. I want to give him cover. <laughs> I want to give him cover. But the Joe Thomas thing you made, Jackie Slater to play that many yeah. years in the league. Yeah. It's like, I think we do this thing with the NFL too much where the guys who are the very best at what they do, they all just outworked everybody or they all were, they were made of something different. There's a lot of context and luck that goes into everybody's career and Correct. myself included. If I wasn't a high draft pick, maybe my struggles, my first or that, that second year would have had me in trouble. I don't know. So I had a longer leash than some people. Some people are more talented than others. Some people end up on the right team. Some people draft the right place, have the right coaches, the right system. So I think that when you look back and I play with a lot of guys like this, that's why I'm always like giving people context around players and the situations they're in because i saw it for eight years i saw guys with their careers wasted yeah well now that we've depressed the hell out of everybody i think it's a perfect time to take a break and come but back the money. and talk about yes but the money and also the pot of gold you found twice yeah. at the end of the rainbow and why you're in the most exclusive club in the history of the nfl and a terrible career decision you've made after <laughs> okay. we'll get to all of that after this <laughs> Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles reinvent the way they work. When the pandemic hit, the bike shop had to close their New York City showroom. Now they found a way to reopen by doing virtual visits on Teams. And now the team can meet with two or three times the number of customers they could before, and people from all over the world can visit their showroom. Learn more about their story and others at Microsoft.com Teams. All right, back with another episode of Half Forgotten History, season two, all about the rings with Chris Long. And if you watch the first half of the show, you're thinking, my God, why is he on the show? Well, because things changed uh, late in his career. And I don't know, can we can we break the story now of how I was able to break the story of you signing with the Patriots? It's cool to do that now, right? Yeah, do it. Yeah. 
I, you texted me and said, I'm yeah. signing with the Patriots. So that's yeah. how it happened. Yeah. So yeah. You know, exactly. one for me, Big eat cat. it, Schefter. Eat it, yeah. Schefter, you know, one you, for me. It's really eat it, Big Cat and PFT. Yeah, they, they, yeah they even wanted, better. They wanted, me, they wanted me to break it on part of my take so bad. But I was like, you know what? If I'm going to be signing with the Patriots and people here, I'm breaking <laughs> on like part of my take. People are going to make this guy's going up there to fuck around a little bit. Not that they're not capital J journalists. They're a uh, oh, big J, big, big J, J now, big, big J. J, big J. But yeah, I mean, the funny story about that was I was ready to go visit Dallas, man. I was, yeah. I was in the airport. I was in the Richmond airport. <clears throat> First off background was getting there. The thing I alluded to, I heard twice in a row opening weekend against the, the Vikings in 14, uh, then, then, um, in 15, I tried to come back and wasn't myself for the first four games, just rounding back into form and I get rolled up and break my tibia. So two years in a row, just utter bullshit. I'm thinking my career is over. I kind of had a little quit in me at that point. And I think a lot of it was the losing, but I was considering retiring and, uh, I got a call from Bill Belichick and I was at the grocery store and I said, like I picked it up in the back of the grocery store where like the service wasn't great because I just was on list to number. I was like, hello. And then it's like, hi, Chris, Bill Belichick, man, I sprinted to the front of that store <laughs> so I could get some <laughs> my, my beers are jangling around and shit. And uh, <laughs> I'm looking just like a just a disheveled mess. Uh, but I'm glad I picked up the call and they said, take a look at, you know, what we're doing. I don't I don't know your role yet. And I appreciate that honesty but we'll find you one. I said, at this point, if I play, I'm ring chasing. So, which right. is not, there's no shame in that in the NFL. Cause it's not like basketball There's no guarantee. Uh, um, so I'm looking at their room and I'm saying, Rob Ninkovich, Trey Flowers, Chandler Jones, like Jabal Shear, like, where do you see a place for me to play? Yeah. Uh, so I start looking around a little bit. I'm going to visit Dallas uh, and I get a notification that Chandler Jones got traded. Yeah, <laughs> so Arizona. Like, this, this is interesting. Um, maybe there's room for me here. And Bill called me in the airport. And obviously, I, you know, at that point, I'm no Chandler Jones. So it's not really about me replacing Chandler Jones. It's just this is how it's going to work. And I, we obviously they de-emphasized the one for the group. Um, and we had a nice little group rushing. But when I tell you, I just turned and gotten an uber i didn't even talk to the gate agent i just went home and made it official uh never got on the flight to dallas that's how it went man and honestly the two teams that came down to were atlanta and um and new england and that's where the super bowl ended up so i was a good handicapper there well that that's that's a that's a different bizarre twist we can discuss but you know we talked a lot and i don't know really how we we sort of became, I think we just started DMing each other on Twitter and that's how this sort of became somewhat of a relationship. But no, I remember you, got, you, I remember you got my, I got yourself the Super Bowl. You were partying. That's right. Man. That's right. You were partying. That's right. Trey Wingo was partying yeah. with the kids at 1 a.m. Shocker, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, shocker, as you can <laughs> see. You're a pandemic ready. <laughs> We're, we're not breaking news here. No. Um, but I remember that year was difficult for you because obviously you came into the league as an edge guy, as yeah. an edge rusher, but they were literally playing you inside a lot yeah. against the run. And yeah. people don't understand, like, you, at your at your heaviest, you were what, 270? Yeah, 275? I was 270 in St. Louis. In, in Virginia, I was in 3-4, so I was like 280. And my buddies see pictures of me at Virginia, and they're like, holy shit. You know, I was look, I was 
waddling. Uh, but then in St. Louis, I was 270 because <laughs> at that point, you know, I could carry it. I was fast enough. I was quick enough in my mid-20s. And then when, when I got to New England, here's what I thought. I thought I was going to be, because I played left end my entire career, being at that point on the right side. Some guys can do it. They're ambidextrous with that. It's underrated quality. Brandon Graham is a very good player to me because he's not going to knock your socks off as an edge rusher necessarily. He's not, you know, big sack number guy all the time, but he's really good at it. And he's really, really good inside. And on the edge, he can rush both sides. That's something I always envied. But I was a true left end, man. Like, you know, I, I just, that's the way it was. I get up there. Not only am I rushing on the right side on third down, but I'm also reduced into a three on every first and second down. After the second game, like the first two games, like I was like, man, I might make my first Pro Bowl here. Like we're finally in a good market, a good team. Like I'm having a nice little year. I got like the game ball or whatever twice. And I'm like, they like me here. It's cool. And then Jamie Collins gets traded. And I and I think what happened was we just leaned into the personnel. And then I was a third down guy. So that was kind of the way it went. I, I, I loved it. It was different. Bill taught me so much about football, but I was out of scheme. It was all good. Yeah. So, so you get to the Super Bowl, and I remember uh, I was on the field before the game. I was talking to you before the game. I'm like, you know, yeah. what are you thinking? And I, I remember you saying to me, "I'm not even sure how much I'm going to play in this game." Like, mm-hmm. Do you remember that conversation? Like, what what Probably. were your thoughts going into Super Bowl Fifty One? To be honest, it was uh, I was I, I'd waited my whole career for it, and all you want to do as a competitor is is put a little mark on the game, you know, no matter how you can, because like, and not for a selfish reason, but just for a reason of like you know, the man in the mirror wants to look back and say, like, I did something for this team. And I did to that point. I mean, like, you know, there were a few games where I played a big role, um, you know, Jets game, big sack at the end, you know, a couple of really good games early in the season. And I did my job, as they say, but the Super Bowl, man, you dream about it and it stresses you out. You're like, if you ever get there, like, what if you mess up? What if you make a big play? I had never thought about in all the years that I was playing 70 snaps for St. Louis that I'd play 18 or 20, you know, and 20, the reason it was that low even was because um, we couldn't get to third down. Yeah. Yeah. First half. I mean, we literally could not get in sub. And so I'm sitting there and I'm older now. 32, 33 years old. And I'm like, I'm fucking tight on the bench here now. Like if I get in here, I might, the first play, actually, the first play, I swear to you, I come out there and I'm so like out of rhythm. It's a three man rush, which is like, okay, you're great. Your first play in the Super Bowl is a three man rush. This is amazing. And I go to power rush the uh, tackle and the guard hits me and I'm out of balance because I'm just like so cold. And I plant and I chip a little bone off on my, uh, my knee, my knee, my knee still hurts. I had, I had, I had one good knee. Uh, and then after that play, I had two, the rest of my, or zero, the rest of my career, but like, that's how cold I was. And, um, you know, it was really a mental exercise and I get why playing in New England's hard because you really do have to give up your concept of yourself as a player. I think that's one of the hardest things because there is no plan. There's no like, like, Hey, this is how we're going to use you. We're going to use you the best way to win the football game for this team. I think one of the biggest common misconceptions is you go to New England, you're going to play the best ball of your career. You're going to play the best ball for that team. And that's what we signed up for. And so all that position shit that frustrated me at times, I knew I was there and I was so appreciative. And that's why when I left, I didn't make it like some 
I'm pissed because I, you know, like I just, it just wasn't perfect. And I appreciate it so much. If, if I'm not on that team, you know, Philly never happens. If we don't win that Super Bowl, Philly never happens because I was ready to just call it quits. Yeah. So that game obviously will go down in Super Bowl history. When Amazing. it became 28 to three, when they just scored, the Falcons made 28 to three, your thought was what? It's over. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to be one of these people that... Um, I believed. I believed all the way. Look, there, there's some of those guys, man, and listen, some of them very well might have because I think the thing people miss a lot about this situation is if you've been on a team like I've been on for eight years, you're conditioned to think when you go down 28-3, it's over. I don't care if Tom's sitting in the other chair across the locker room or you're looking at Bill Belichick, like... When you play football at that level and you do the things we did in the first half, you do not win. You do not win. And you certainly don't win in the playoffs that way, right? Hadn't been there long, but I knew that from watching the playoffs for many years. Um, so, you know, there were guys that were like, we got this, we got this. But I'm telling you, I was like, man, I'm just going to worry about making a stop. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worry about, you know, doing me. That doesn't mean you quit. I think that's something that people, if you just because you don't believe doesn't mean you quit. For years, I knew we were going to lose in St. Louis. So for me, it's easy to go out there and try to bust my ass. And when we came out of the the out of the tunnel for the third quarter, the big play was high. Uh, Devontae Freeman missing that blitz pickup and high running free and getting to Matt's arm. And we remember we all piled on Matt and got up and I saw the ball on the ground and we picked it up and. I just remember thinking like all the New England guys were excited because they knew what was coming. But for me, I was like, okay, next play. Cause I'm like, I, I don't believe it yet, <laughs> you know? And then slowly we did the things to get back in that game. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you had just, they'd just gone down and kicked a field goal to make it 28 to 12. And so mm -hmm. the, the Freeman misplays on third and one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you alluded to it, I think earlier, you know, it's a third and one. If they pick up a first down, the game is probably over. Or even yeah. if they don't pick up the first down, if they just run the football, the mm -hmm. punt and the time that comes off the clock, the game is probably over. That's why they it did was the, so big. Yeah, they did the one thing you could not do in that scenario, which was allow the big play to happen. So the I remember I was upstairs talking to Dan Copen, uh, Right when that happened, and we, he was just sort of like, I can't believe the Patriots have came out, come out this flat. This has never happened to a Patriots team. And as soon as that play happened, he turned to me with eyes as big as I've ever seen him and said, they're going to win this game. That's like, the thing. Yeah. Everybody in New England knows that. Yeah. You can't yeah. blame me or the new guys for not knowing that. Because, like, yeah. this just we, – we, listen, I, I knew we were back in it, but um, to your point – the score the way it was, the time left, two touchdowns, two two-point conversions, and two-point conversions make me so nervous. Not to mention, you know, like we – there was also a point after all that fighting and scratching back where Julio caught that ball on the right sideline. Yep, field goal wins the game. It's over, dude. Yep. We all – and like me and Jabal turned to each other and we're kind of like, you know, we just – we're proud, you know, but uh, it's probably – this is probably curtains. And then, like you said, all you had to do, Trey Sack, Jake helped me, and they're out of field goal range. And at that point, 
it was like, okay, now I know we're going to, I know we're going to win now. Cause it's just yeah. one possession. We've come this far. And then when we tied it, uh, I'll always remember guys on the sideline, they were walking over after we stopped Atlanta at the end of regulation, one last like two minute drive, which was like 40 seconds to go backed up. So it didn't matter what well, matters. As you can see, like anything can happen, but we're on the, we're on the sideline and we, guys are walking over all calm and it looks like they're almost defeated. I'm like, what happened at the toss? They're like, Oh no, we're winning this game. We won the toss, guys. Take your helmet off. <laughs> yeah. Like on defense, yeah. we were not going back out there. And that was kind of like the calming kind of realization that okay, the goats got the ball. It's over. So when they go down and score and you know, 34-28, I think we're glossing over the Edelman catch because that was one of the craziest Amazing. things I've ever seen in my life. Amazing. Yeah. Like there's there's no way that ball should be caught. Like there's literally no way that ball should be caught, yet somehow. That scrappy little guy from Kent State found a way to get his hands between the no ball and the, and the turf. Yeah, no, no chance. chance. He was so clutch, what? man. He was so clutch. And Jules is like one of the most competitive, tough guys I ever played with. And, um, you know, I was I was so happy for him to make that play because uh, he's kind of been a little bit of a mini heartbeat for them for so long, right? And yeah, that was yeah. his big moment, right? Yeah. So, so – they go in, they score. What was the first thought you had when you realized all that shit, for lack of a better term, that you went through has been washed away from a football perspective by the one thing that everybody wants? It was relief, man. But it was it was absolutely relief. It was more relief than it was like just being overcome with it. Um I didn't, I didn't like cry or anything like, but I thought I would, I was just more appreciative and relieved and like relieved that, okay, like I didn't get the snaps I wanted. This wasn't the perfect year, but I played well with the snaps I had and, and, uh, made my mark, my little mark on, uh, doing my job, you know, like my job was to pressure people on third down, you know, you have six, seven pressures on 18 snaps. You feel pretty good about that. A couple hits and the hold, like I was good. So from then it was just like enjoy the party man you know it was just it was enjoy yeah. those guys man because we had the best locker room it was just such a good locker room and those guys i mean from matthew slater to jules to devin mccourty to you know rob ninkovich who i'm still really tight with and my, i talked to devin the other day like i talked to jules the other day i talked to slate the other day there's a very special locker room that they had man and um that's if you ask like what does new england have right sure there's some things about it that can rub guys wrong and that sort of thing. But the people in the locker room, the dudes that they had assembled were truly amazing dudes. And so the parade was amazing. The party that night, like um, just the plane ride back. It was so new to me, man, you know, to, to be done with football for the year. I'd never finished pro football and woke up the next morning doing anything but like playing Call of Duty, booking a booking a vacation and getting ready to watch football where I'm going to watch wild card round. I said this earlier, you're in the most exclusive club in the history of the NFL. There are only five players, five players yeah. that can say they've won back-to-back -back Super Bowls on two different teams. Deion Sanders, Ken Norton, yourself, your teammate, LeGarrette Blunt, who mm -hmm. also went with you from New England to Philadelphia, and Brandon Browner. Uh, you go back the second year uh, to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 52, and – Listen, we're having Zach Ertz on. I'm going to let him tell that story because, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't Absolutely. have the experience that you have. Yeah. But but the idea, 
you almost had the sack that ended the game. I mean, I remember down the stretch right before, you know, right before uh, the, the Hail Mary, me. you almost got Brady on the it ground, right? It, it still haunts you? Yeah. Even though you got two rings, that missed sack haunts you? I hate that picture so much. <laughs> I'm greedy. You know, yeah. like, I want it all. Like, you yeah. You know, like it was amazing. <laughs> I I want that sack though. I, like, and I think about like the ball is three inches from my hand and I'm just thinking one more little like hitch and we got the ball out. And then, uh, you know, it was an amazing year though. It's like, you see what's going on there right now. Yeah. And I pull for those guys, man. I got a lot of guys on that team. You talk about a special team and we just know something like the new England experience is one thing. Cause it's this is what we do we are a machine and yes it takes chance and luck and hard work and nothing's automatic but this is what we do philly we were picked to be a bottom four four quarter of the league team so looking back and you don't know it when you're in it you feel it but you don't know what it meant until afterwards like nobody could fuck with us it was just like we had that mentality and it was just like we're the team that everybody's afraid of you know, it was just like we were just dangerous. And so that's a cool feeling. It's a cool feeling to be a part of that group. And it also goes to show you how hard it is to get back there because, you know, it's just been rough, man. It's been really rough there. They've had bad luck. They've made bad decisions. Um, and it just goes to show you how sometimes it's like I'm not saying lightning in a bottle because I, I do believe in those guys, but it's just it's hard to recreate that. So, so let's let's establish two truths about football on your two Super Bowl years. Number one, wins are not a quarterback stat, right? Let's just be honest about that. Because if yeah. Hightower doesn't, if Hightower doesn't make that play and that strip sack, there's no chance to win. And even though Brady gets the win, they're not winning unless that play goal. happens. Yeah, they kick the field yeah. goal. You make an eleven point yeah. game, it's over. So, Correct. yeah. Wins are not a quarterback stat. Number two, which I think is interesting, when it's all said and done. The thing I hate more than anything is when somebody says we wanted it more than them. And Jason Kelsey dressed up in a Mummer's Day outfit uh, at the parade. I love Jason to death. I think he's great. I loved his impassioned plea. It should all be about winning. But when he got up there and said, we wanted it more. No, you didn't. You just happened no. to win. No, you know, like, here's my thing. I'm not really into the we wanted it more. As I said, with like players, like the greatest players of all time, you know, they can act like they wanted it more. But a lot of times they're some of them make up stories to justify how good they were with like work ethic. And I did this. Like, yeah. no, you're just really fucking good, too. <laughs> you know, like. I do think there was a sense that it wasn't that we wanted it more. Those guys, I know how bad those guys want it. We played with a different mentality. You know, we played like like a kick down the door mentality. And you can try to like. You can try to feed a team bulletin board material and you can try to tell them nobody's giving them a chance. But when what happened in L.A. happened and we pulled that game out, Carson which was Wentz a big going deal down with the knee injury, yeah, big deal winning that game on the road for 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 reasons of home field advantage. But also because when you get in that locker room and after such a key matchup, we're on the tail end of a two week West Coast trip where we got beat by Seattle, played our worst game. When you walk in that locker room and you hear that Carson's done for the season, probably, do you want to do that after a loss or win? And so, you know, we finished and we regrouped. And it was one of those things, man, where the next week the defense was paying so much attention to Carson that we gave up 
30 points to the Giants and almost lost in New York. Then the week after that, you know, we had to carry the offense. Nick wasn't quite there yet. First playoff game, windy, cold. I mean, we beat the Raiders and it was zero degrees in Philly almost, I felt like. And we had to tackle Marshawn Lynch. We won like 12 to 7. The Raiders weren't a good football team. We had to scrap to be that team that beat Minnesota. So for a solid month, we were having like our preseason. Okay, this is who we are. We're, we're same team, but we have to start over. And so it was the Atlanta game. Julio Jones catches that ball in the end zone in the corner, in yeah. the right-hand corner. We never go on that That's ride, it. man. So, See ya. Yeah. you know, it, we just we just had – we had been on a different journey than them. And uh, and that, that showed. Um, but that's not to say they didn't want it more. You know, we just had this kind of attitude, I felt like. It made for a great speech. And he had – you had the second best outfit behind him with the fur yeah, coat. his outfit which was, 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 was ridiculous. <laughs> Mine so, was just thrown together. <laughs> yeah. So now, now, out of all that success, you decided to be a member of the media. Why? Boredom. <laughs> Probably boredom, right? Um, why do we do anything? Thing, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, make money. You're getting very existential with me, and I don't know yeah, if I but, can the tray. So. I mean, like, the reason I did it is because I like talking to people. I like catching up with 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 friends. I like still being a part of the game. I really do. I mean, just in some capacity. Sometimes I can't stand stand football, but most times I'm really entertained with it, like a fan, you know. And that's that's the angle I want to come from when I'm breaking down the game. And um, also, I think, like, honestly. For me, it's the opportunity to have no bosses because I'm kind of doing this podcast thing on my own. I don't think Same. I could have come. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. it feels good to, to to wake up and not have to, like, have a shitty take to please people or, you know, to to be dramatic, to please people or do something because everybody maybe I don't want to talk about something one day. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I'm calling my shots now. I don't get the big bucks like some people, but yeah. I don't. I also don't have to wear a suit and I can work from home. I would not move to another city. I don't know. I can say this with certainty for a new job in the media. That's the biggest hamstringing of me and my media career ever. Like I live in Virginia, not moving. Well, the beauty of that is in, in the, we're in the, current environment that we're living in i don't think that's changing anytime soon and quite frankly it may change forever with the the way we're doing this now well i mean think of the production cost of what we're doing right now as opposed to doing it the other way i mean i just that that's going to be the way things go all right we've taken up way too much of your time for a part-time job from your basement so uh (laughs) uh, go fly be free uh always good to talk to you buddy uh be well be strong and try and survive the media because it can be an unnerving experience Trey, I'm trying. I'm not, I've never been much of a drama student or a performance arts person, so I don't think I'm going to climb too high. But stay hydrated, man. Okay? There stay hydrated. Go. I see you back, back there. You, yes, I'm drinking water, There's buddy. some water in here. There's some water. <laughs> right, get out of here. I'll talk to you later. All right, buddy. See you. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Once again, our thanks to Chris for giving up so much of his time. And by the way... Chris is an interesting dude. You can check out his Twitter handle, which is Hydrated Chris Long. He went into the whole story about that. And of course, he's also got his own pod, The Greenlight Podcast, where he does some really interesting things. Check that out. Coming up next week, a guy who, I'm going to say it, he owes his ESPN career to me. Yeah, and he knows it. Super Bowl champion, longtime member of the Pittsburgh Steelers, started his career with the Giants, believe it or not, then went to Washington, but of course won that ring with the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl 43, Ryan Clark. We'll see you next time.